Now more than ever, we're turning to experts to help cut through the noise and guide us through crisis. Dr. Mehmet Oz, also known as Dr. Oz, graduated with a bachelor's degree at Harvard before earning his medical degree from the University of Pennsylvania and went on to become one of the world's best-known heart surgeons. Dr. Oz gained fame after appearing on The Oprah Winfrey Show, offering pointers to those seeking a healthier lifestyle. Now for more than a decade, Oz has been the host of his own program, The Dr. Oz Show, where he offers medical advice to an audience of four million viewers every day. At an unprecedented time in the modern era, I sit down with Dr. Oz to learn more about COVID-19 and what we as a society can do to stop the virus as it spreads across our world. Influencers with Andy Serwer is brought to you by Verizon. Hello, everyone. I'm Andy Serwer, and welcome to Influencers. And welcome to our guest today, Dr. Mehmet Oz, physician at Columbia University and, of course, host of The Dr. Oz Show. Dr. Oz, great to see you. Thank you, Andy. So uh, let me ask you first question, I think, top of mind for everyone. How much of a risk does the coronavirus pose to the average American? Well, the CDC just released some interesting modeling data at the end of last week. That's why you're seeing a lot of the more draconian measures being offered. It really scared a lot of us. And they argue that more than half of the American public will get coronavirus. And if the data that they model out is accurate, we could lose more than a million Americans to the virus. Now, that's not written in stone. We can change that reality. And if you look at what happened in Korea versus Italy, you see a very real-time experience that's different, 10 times different mortality. So instead of having a million people die, you can have maybe 100,000 people die, which is only twice the flu. So we're at least you know, directionally heading in the right uh, place. But for most Americans, it's going to be nothing. It's going to be subtle symptoms. In fact, I talked to a woman this morning who was screened getting off a cruise ship and incidentally found out that she had coronavirus. She had zero symptoms. She worked out doing Pilates the whole time she was in isolation. She said, I never knew it. Her husband also had very little symptoms or none, and he's still spewing virus three weeks later. So all the things we think we know about the virus are challenging us, and we now believe probably half the time you get infected is from someone who's either asymptomatic, like that woman I met, or pre-symptomatic which means it's an incubation period of five days. Day three, you're spewing virus, but you feel okay. You don't know you're ill. And so you, you not desiringly influence and infect people, and that's one of the reasons this virus spreads so rapidly. But for the 20% of the population that gets sick, it's a big deal. And we don't know what determines whether or not you're going to be severely impacted? Well, we have some pretty good ideas. Uh, Age plays an important role, but that's primarily because of the comorbid events that happen as you get older. Naturally, you become more hypertensive, more diabetic, you have more problems with your lungs, but most importantly, you get cardiovascular disease. Here's what people don't appreciate about this virus. Everyone thinks it's pneumonia that kills you. Usually, it's, or most commonly I'll say, it's because you have hardening of the arteries and you get this cascade of inflammation in the body, which leads to the sludging of blood and eventually blocks off your blood vessels. So if your blood vessels are young and nimble and flexible, well, then it's not a big deal. You laugh it off. But if you have one of these bad reactions and you happen to have a hardening of your arteries with a couple blockages in your heart, you'll have a heart attack. And that's one of the reasons that older people with prior conditions seem to suffer death from this virus, whereas most of the population escapes un unscathed. And it really is the case that younger people, for instance, are in better shape, maybe because of just what you were saying. 
It's not just that they're better shaped. There's probably other variables as, as well. But under 10 years of age, not a single death on the planet so far with coronavirus. Under the age of 30, the numbers are de minimis. Most of the problems start as you get older. Right. It actually starts around age 50. And then by the time you get to 60, you're basically doubling the risk every decade of having a, a mortality. And a lot of those complications are related to factors that are very clearly dependent on how prepared you were to, to, to weather the storm of the infection. So subtle things like sleeping better and daily exercise, which again, young people seem to do better than old people, predispose you to uh, resisting the infection effectively. Now you have a survival guide, right? And what you can do, preventative stuff. Talk to us about that. Andy, I, I made that survival guide for people that were my friends, including a mutual friend of ours. Yes. And I actually just put it on a piece of paper initially. And then I realized this was, by the way, material I harvested from many of my colleagues who are world experts in the area. I get the, you know, the ability, the blessing of hosting them on the show. And I ask them little notes. What would you do for this? Would you take vitamins? And which ones? And how much would you sleep? And exactly what would you buy in the store if you were going to stock up on stuff? And how do you clean the environment around you? Because a lot of the things I, I learned were not as accurate as I expected. We put it into a one sheet. It is the single most shared piece of literature I've ever put out online. And I'm happy, of course, it's, it's thrilling that people can take advantage of it. But you realize that folks are confused. And you panic mostly because you don't understand. Right. You can, if you get the facts, you won't have fear because you'll have shed light in the dark areas that you would have run away from. So much of what I put on that document is just practical, straight-up advice from world experts. It's accurate. And it's what I tell my family. I'm not arguing that it's the best way of dealing with the coronavirus, but if I'm going to give my family one document, one page, with teenage kids, you have to do that, this is it. Can you tick some of those pointers off? Well, I'll start with, uh, with some basic ideas uh, for hygiene. Uh, when you wash your hands, it's not about just putting a little water on there and being done. It's 20 seconds, but more importantly, I don't care how much you rub the back of your hand. All I care about is your fingertips. Mm -hmm. That's ultimately what touches your face dozens of times an hour. So you have to wash your hand like a surgeon does, which means you, after you've lathered up, you do the twist. It's called a mm. Turkish twist. You go back and forth. The fingers are rubbing inside the palm. Then you get the thumb separately because you have opposing digits. So if your thumb is dirty, so will all your fingers. And then finally, this is called greasing the palm. Wipe the fingers like this, like this. Ideally, your nails are short, and then you can rinse off. That takes about 20 seconds. You're not just sitting there waiting, counting to 20. You're actually working on the, that's it. Uh, if I was going to clean this bench behind us, now yeah. we know that the virus can live on hard surfaces for about, you know, 48 hours, two days. So I can quickly take a wipe and clean it like this. That does nothing but spread the virus around. That's what I used to do. It turned out you're better off spraying it, giving it, you know, two minutes, three minutes to dry. That drying period gives contact to the virus with these different alcohol or bleach products. They, as it evaporates, you kill the virus. Now you actually have effectively disinfected an area. These are just two simple examples of, of an idea that sounds simple that's actually a bit more sophisticated if you truly understand the subtlety of it. How important is social distancing? The number one most important thing we can do, and the generals can't do that for us. Only the privates can do that, me and you. The, we have to, in the trenches, practice what we're doing right now. Far enough away that even if I were to cough, I probably wouldn't be able to reach your face. Now, thankfully, as the weather warms, it's going to swell up those virus particles so they wouldn't go that far anyway. It would drop you know, half the distance away. But if I can get close enough to you, like I'm having dinner with you, that, you, that some of my saliva may touch you, that's how you'll get it. And it, when I cough, it creates a plume that stays in the air for a couple of minutes. So, you know, it, it's flowing around, trying to get inside your nasal membranes, in your mouth, your eyes, and it can affect you through any of those areas. Now, you just said something about the weather, which is something that 
people are also concerned about or maybe hopeful about, which is that this will get better in, in warmer weather. Then I saw a story in Reuters today dispelling that. So which is it? I think it's going to get better in the summer. And I've triangulated that with a lot of experts. First of all, historically, these viruses have done that. Secondly, we're already seeing it in China. And not just from social distancing. I think the weather change makes a difference. Um, but I also think we're outside more. We're not near each other quite as much. So there are many reasons why I think that would be the case. But we don't have to get it to go away this summer. We have to take advantage of the next six to eight weeks of hardship to, to suffocate the pandemic so it doesn't spread into our community so rapidly that our hospitals get overwhelmed. After that, as we get better at treating the virus itself, which we already have tools to do with Ebola treatments and HIV treatments will probably help a little bit with this, maybe a lot. Even there's some treatments for malaria that seem to work. So as those treatments get better, we'll be able to take care of people more regularly with less mortality through the summer. Just spread out the illness. That's the goal. What does uh, COVID-19 remind you of in terms of other health um, scenarios, health crises that we've had, doctor? Spanish flu influenza. It's mm -hmm. probably the most similar to that. 1918, it came about at a very weak time in human history. We just finished the First World War. Uh, it hit the country, then it went away for the summer, then it came back again. And they made some uh, brilliant moves and some catastrophic moves. Mm -hmm. And I'll just tell a tale of two cities. Philadelphia, where I'm from, had a big parade, 200,000 people. But it was two days after the first case. They never recovered. They couldn't cancel it. They had all the business leaders that wanted it. There was a lot of pressure. You don't be a coward. Let it go. And whereas St. Louis, first case, we're done. They shut everything. Bars, everything. Shut it all down. And... It was trivial compared to Philadelphia. We want to be St. Louis in this scenario. Overreact a little bit. We can always loosen up. But if we do it the other way around, we will not catch up from behind. So are we doing enough yet? I think we're doing enough now. There's uh, a limit of 50 people the CDC just recommended, which is the right number. Uh, it had been 500 in New York and 250 in California. Everyone had their own rules. That's not good also because people think, well, you're making a number up. That was just Come on, you mm -hmm. just threw that out there. Right. right? And which is, frankly, a little bit how it works. But it's like the, the principle is very solid. And I don't know, why would you go to an event with more than 50 people right now? Why would you do that to yourself, your country, the people around you that are frail? So I think 50 is the right number. And I personally am just going to link up with my close family. That oh, they're all, We're all staying with each other. Uh, if we're all pretty young and healthy. Uh, I'm the oldest person. <laughs> so I'll be the canary in the coal mine. And I'm very careful about who I talk to and speak to. And I've stayed out of the public uh, for quite a bit because I just don't know what's going to happen. And I think it's a responsibility uh, for me for the rest of the family. That's what most people should be doing. Go out when you have to to get food, order out food, uh, get supplies when you need them. Don't do unnecessary things that aren't going to add up. In China, everywhere you go, Mehmet, you get your temperature taken. Yeah. Walk into a bus, temperature taken. Walk into a restaurant, temperature taken. If you got a temperature, you're sent to a fever clinic. Should we be doing that here? Do we need to do that? With this newer data about how often it's passed by asymptomatic people, I don't know how beneficial that is. Mm. Because sometimes you pull people over for having a temperature of 100, it's because they were hot, running for the train. So you're creating a, a, a blockage to, to, to flow that doesn't really get us a huge benefit. I can't argue against it. I just don't know if it's worth the effort. We're probably better off, now that we understand the virus more, uh, focusing on the fact that social distancing, no matter whether you have a fever or not, is critical. Because I could be just as infectious now as I would be in three days with a fever. Right. So why would I penalize myself in three days and not miss myself now when I'm actually at equally at risk? See a lot of people with masks, and you also hear they don't do a thing. What about that? Oh, no. Masks, the right kinds, do do something. But 
but we don't have enough of them. So it is your patriotic duty to not use a mask. Now, the surgery, to not use a to mask. To not use a mask. Why is that? Because the, if the hospitals are undersupplied of masks, which we are, and the nurses and doctors can't contain enough, can't use enough of these N95 masks, which, by the way, for them to truly work, they have to be fitted. Every year, every doctor and nurse in America puts, their, puts this big hood on our heads, puts those masks on our face, and we push down the nose, and we make sure it fits around our face. If it doesn't perfectly mold so well that when they squeeze a smell into that hood, uh, we don't smell it. That's how good it has to work. Mm. Then we, they fit us differently. You're not doing that at home. You're literally just finding an N95 mask on Amazon and putting it on. So if you have facial hair, it won't work. If it doesn't fit your face correctly, it won't work anyway. So why waste your money and take a mask out of circulation that we could have used to keep nurses and doctors healthy? If the hospital system gets sick, either the doctors themselves or the hospital can't keep up with the flow, that's the weak link in our society. We can deal with this otherwise. How concerned are you about that last point? In New York City, I know that we have enough supply, as long as we don't have a complete onslaught, the way people go after toilet paper into our ERs. Uh, I don't know how the rest of the country would fare if they had a major crisis. I think we'd be able to ship patients around a little bit, but why find out? By the time we find that out, it's too late to fix the problem. You have critically ill people waiting in gurneys and in hallways while their brethren are being saved. And that's not what, that's what happened in Italy. A, again, a Western, sophisticated country that many Still of us have been Still happening, right? Still happening in Italy. And I spoke this morning to Newt Gingrich, who's, you know, his wife is the ambassador to the Holy See, so he lives in Rome. And he said that this is the most organized the Italians have been since ancient Rome. They are really buttoned up. It's too late. Wow. I mean, I shouldn't say it's too late. It's better than never doing it, but they have suffered a huge loss of life. They had almost 500 people die this weekend. You know, we can all do better than that. The jury's still out for the United States, though, right? And, and we don't have enough tests Let's just talk about tests for a minute. Why don't we have enough tests? Are we getting enough tests? Where do they, where do we stand with that? If you ask in, in, in a quiet way why we don't have enough tests, people in the know will acknowledge that this country had access to the kits to, uh, and the technology to make the kits within a week of the virus being known. But we made some strategic errors in deciding to, to make it ourselves, to get the CDC, which is not a commercial operation to make masks or kits. That's not what they do. They're the CDC. So we didn't gear up like we should have, empowering industry to make these kits or taking them from other countries that were ahead of us. And that's why we didn't get them in time. Uh, this week, there's a bunch being shipped out. I am told, I know that there were, there, there were freestanding screening centers, the mobile screening centers that were already operational uh, around the country. I saw video footage of them working. Uh, so I believe we're past that. But if for the average person, Andy, it doesn't matter. If you have a fever, a cough, um, and some fatigue, you basically have to assume you have coronavirus. So I'd like you to get checked just because it helps us understand the epidemiology of this. But the most important thing is don't pass go, don't collect $200, go hide in your room because that way you won't spread it to The big epidemic in New York started in Westchester when a man who came back from Italy felt poorly and his neighbor, trying to be a friend, drove him to the hospital. Mm. Then he got sick, gave it to his kids who went to private school, the different schools in the area. Yeah. All the different schools got sick. So you try to help, you're doing the wrong thing. So what do you do with your family, though? Suppose you feel sick. Maybe you have it, maybe you don't. Well, maybe let's, let's back up. So when, do, when should you get a test? If you have the triad that I mentioned, a fever, mm -hmm. uh, fatigue, and a, a dry cough, if you can get a test, get a test, because that way you know for sure. Now, we're first going to check you for H1N1. Well, we'll yeah. check you for influenza right. virus. Uh, and then uh, if you can find a corona test, we'll get that. But that has been, that has been difficult to find. Even on Friday, I had t trouble getting one for... Uh, so a friend of mine 
who needed, I thought needed to be tested. And that test comes back this Friday. So he has to wait a week anyway. So he might as well just have quarantined himself, which he's doing anyway, right? Because you can't go traveling around. Once you've tested yourself for H1N1, I mean, for, uh, uh, for coronavirus, you basically have to assume you have it until they tell you you don't. So you have to quarantine yourself. But yeah, so what about that? Aren't you just giving it to your family then? Well, you can pretty much assume that by the time you figure out that you have it, you already have given it to your family. And there's an the important trade-off, societal trade-off between health and the well-being of the people around you. So our mom's not going to kiss their kids, even though they know they'll give it to their kids. Well, the kids aren't dying from it. They barely know they have it. Uh, they're going to probably get it eventually. Not having a mom not kiss their child creates a significant trauma in the child's life. And this is already difficult. And if I have a, a four-year-old grandson who was being sent home from school because they canceled school, and teachers were really buttoned up about this, very careful what they said. They didn't want to overstate nor breed fear. As they're walking out, one of the kids taken asked a question. The teacher said, yes, she says, is coronavirus going to kill us? Well, the little boy came home, and he asked his parents, my, my daughter, he said, what is coronavirus and what does kill mean? <laughs> so it's a pretty yeah. profound transition. Now, in, in a good way, potentially, this is a generation-defining moment. My son, who got sent home from college, they canceled Harvard, as they did many schools, uh, has a whole different view of his responsibility. Uh, many, many young people will feel grown up after being through this. Uh, they've been personally threatened by an, an ailment, and they've had to shape up and help society and do what's best for the country. That's not a bad thing. I hate to have it happen with a pandemic, but there might be some silver linings around this. What about leadership, Dr. Oz? A lot of people are bellyaching that Washington's behind the ball. Some people are always doing that. But in this case, this is a real time for them to step up, and maybe they haven't done so. Uh, there have definitely been snafus. But i got to say, if you knew exactly how to manage this virus uh, and how difficult it would be and different from what the norm is to implement it, no one would imagine we would be here a month ago. Nobody. We were talking about, you know, maybe we slow down certain airplanes from some countries coming here. The idea of shutting down every school in a major urban area like New York City, a million kids almost went home. Uh, and, you know, they're going home to an environment that's not so great. You know, many of these kids are in a poverty setting already. So this becomes a remarkable challenge to our society. Our, it's, we're stretching our brains. We're creating new normals. I mean, what happened to the handshake? When was the last time you shook someone's hand? Right? Every day of your life, you shook someone's hand until probably two weeks ago when someone said there's 10 times more bacteria transmitted through a handshake than a fist bump. And now we're pretty much just elbow bumping. So the new normal, of course, is very easy to appreciate in the moment, but not when you're leading up to it. So you can be tough on Washington all you want. And of course, they've had missteps. And the messaging has been a bit confused at times. But directionally, the right things are happening. I don't know who's making all the decisions. I, I trust Dr. Fauci a lot. I really enjoy the Surgeon General, Dr. Adams. I think they're very capable, very uh, buttoned-up people. The head of uh, CMS, um, Dr. Verma, also extraordinarily good at what she's doing. So the people that I'm interacting with, I trust. Where do we go from here in terms of other cities and school systems and domestic travel in particular, Dr. Oz? I don't think we're going to restrict domestic travel too much. First of all, people can travel within their states legally. You can't block that without a lot of effort. Uh, the federal government could block interstate uh, transfers, uh, transfer of goods and people, but I'm not sure that's the right thing to do anyway. We need more focused efforts around cities that are in trouble, like New York, where it's worth taking the steps that are happening here. If you look outside, I mean, it's so quiet as we talk, even though there's usually a, that's, that's a big avenue behind us. There's no cars in the streets. People are staying home. 
People are smart. We're Americans. We're a can-do people. We know how to mobilize. If you just treat people like adults and tell them what they have to do because it's better for all of us, they'll do it. A friend of mine called me. He's a prominent restaurateur in New York last night. And he said, my, I, can't, I don't know what to do about my restaurant. I, I took out half the tables. I spread the remaining chairs out so they weren't so close to each other. And everyone pushed the chairs back together and are jumping at each other and they're dancing. And he sh ended up shutting the restaurant down. So we'll do what's right. And what about a vaccine? Where does that stand? We, first, the vaccine trial started this week. Uh, the good news is we'll have one in, in 12 to 15 months. Uh, the bad news, it takes 12 to 15 months because you can't give hundreds of millions of people of shots that don't work or have side effects. And by that time, half the population will probably have already had the infection. But it's not a big deal for most people. So if it happens slowly over the course of the year, we'll all be just fine. This is part of our lives going forward. This virus will never go away. It's going to be an endemic virus. Everyone talks about pandemic. This is endemic in that it's always around. But it's a fairly smart, uh, docile virus. You know, a virus to, and it has mutated. But viruses mutate to get more infectious. This is already plenty infectious. They often will mutate so they don't harm too much because they, they don't want you to die because then they'll die. So it's sort of where it wants to be. <laughs> so, so this is always going to be around, but geez, I hope next year it's not like this where everyone's freaking out and we shut down the entire economy, right? It definitely won't be like this next year because we'll have better treatments, uh, better pre pre uh, prevention. And when you get that many people already infected, you build firewalls that block out the virus from just spreading throughout the community. What, what hurt us on this virus is we'd never seen it before. It was brand new. So our immune system had no idea what to look for. And so we couldn't get, on, get ahead of it in any capacity, no matter how strong we are. But we have this situation where these new things, you know, crop up, right? When I was a kid, when you were a kid, MERS, SARS, swine flu, bird flu, they didn't exist. I mean, where does it come from? As the human species crowds the animal species that are around us, and we do, are doing that progressively, the viruses that live in those species peacefully without too much of a problem either get married to our viruses or they mutate in a way that allows them to hurt us, but not the animals. Oftentimes it's the other way. I'm sure we give plenty of viruses to animals that kill them. <laughs> but in this case, the, a, a bat, which is a mammal, probably somehow infected a pagolin or bamboo rat or some rodent species, another mammal. And in this wet market in Wuhan or near there, something happened. You know, they, One of our sore throat viruses, a coronavirus, married one of their viruses, and it jumped into us and it found a fantastic home. We can't blame people for this, can we? No, they never know this is happening. Some of the xenophobia that I've witnessed is shocking. And it's very easy to, to look for someone to blame. Unfortunately, we're all in this together. This is the first time I, that in my lifetime that everyone has come together speaking with the exact same voice, right, with the same perspective, the same problem. So it doesn't really matter why it started. It could have started anywhere. It just happened to start in a place that uh, we were able to identify it. If, it. if it had started in some countries, you never would have known. Just a couple less quick questions. Are there going to be parts of the United States that are relatively unscathed? So far, the only part of the United States that, that is unscathed is West Virginia. That's completely unscathed, but there's some places that only have a few right. cases, right? The rural areas of the country uh, are going to remain relatively healthy because they don't have the congestion. Uh, social, distancing, social distancing for them is part of life. So for them, it's not an issue. It's the major urban areas where we'll pay the biggest price. It's funny. I was looking at most dangerous occupations. And, and safest, and all of a sudden being a dentist becomes very dangerous, whereas being a logger, which used to be a very difficult, a very dangerous job, Timber! is now safe. 
sure. It's now safe, it's though, right. because you're distanced from people. Exactly. It's ironic how the world sees you differently, right. just because of a simple little virus. And then one last question about viruses, just generally. Um, we, we've seen these new threats. And so are we going to see new threats? This is part of our life sort of going forward, Doctor. I had the movie Contagion on uh, 10 years ago when, to launch it, actually. And I, I had Soderbergh on the show, who's the famous director. Yeah. and. Some of the great actors were in it, along with their real-life counterparts. Mm -hmm. And everyone on that stage was an expert, really, because they don't study it, either to act it or to, because they really were. And they all said the same thing. In our lifetime, we will have contagion. This looked like it was going to be contagion. It's not, thankfully. This is a virus that's as infectious as that, but not nearly as deadly. But it's hard to imagine not having another virus like this that's more dangerous. That's why this is a dry run. we got to get it right now. So next time it happens, everyone does the same thing from this... Read off the same hymn, hymnal, same notes, uh, and if we can hammer it like that, we'll stump these out in no time. We have to suffocate these pandemics. Some great information there, Dr. Mehmet Oz. Thank you so much for your time. God bless you, Tim. I'm Andy Serwer. You've been watching Influencers. We'll see you next time.